Hey, it's old timey grimy. <laughs> I'm Christy. I'm Amber. And we are joined by special guest, the Light Barbie, and say hi, Light Barbie. Hi, Light Barbie. <laughs> Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> no, I'm only laughing because right before we started recording, they both like crossed their arms and like. That's how I started the show. This is very serious business. It is very serious serious business. Yes, we're talking about crimes in history, and that is serious business. Um, Don't forget about our Patreon. Uh, We just recorded two episodes for that that'll come out in the next couple weeks. And both of them managed to incorporate a certain theme that you're going to be seeing in this episode. Twins. So there's lots of twins everywhere, and there's a reason that there's lots of twins everywhere, and that's because there's a twin here. Where? Oh crap, it's me. <laughs> the light Barbian is a twin. And hello to her twin Trish. Yep. Who she did not tell any stories about over on the Patreon. Nope. Not a one. And we'll put it out, I am the younger twin. I'm sure the next question will be is, am I the evil twin? Yeah. And right. I, I, I don't think our story is written yet on that one. Oh, okay. I'm the more mischievous. But I think Trish is the one not to be crossed. Ah. So. Depends on what buttons are pushed, I think. No, I, I forgive and forgive, forget, and I don't think she does either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm saying this with her blessing, but. Um, I'm sure you are because she's your twin and you know. Yes. I, lo- I love when you guys have twin moments. Like when you both across the country and without consulting each other at all, wear the same shirt. It has happened when I, I mean, there's been times I went on vacation to go visit her and she came out of her bedroom and we were wearing the same shirt or every now and then we'll text each other and say, are you eating chocolate chip cookies right now? Because she'll get a craving for them (laughs) Um, or vice versa. So sometimes we do share each other's cravings. So was um, that weird when she was pregnant? Like, did you ever crave the things she was craving? She never had a lot of cravings during her pregnancy. So, I mean, we use it as an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's this cake. I'm eating it because my twin is craving it. But she's, she's usually very healthy, and I am not. So, usually... You bring her to the dark side. I bring her to the dark side. <laughs> so, you are the We have twin. cookies. So. <laughs> no, I'm just... I'm the one who likes the cookies, man. She's the cookie twin. I'm the cookie twin. Okay. So, yes, we are telling twin stories today, and we've told twin stories over on the Patreon. And, uh, yeah, I guess let's get to it, because we are doing a timey after timey. So, twins, twin stories. Twins, twin stories. And this comes to us courtesy of, uh, you guys, Vamp or something for a second? Vamp? <laughs> Do you not know the term vamp? Mm. It's when you stall. I could tell you a fun twin anecdote. I found it. Excellent. <laughs> that was very Jeremy Hunt, listener Jeremy Hunt, told us about a crime, but it was a more modern crime, and so I found a less than modern crime to pair with it. Dare I say old timey? It's old timey. This crimey. I said the name of the show, which is what I do. So. Uh, I'm going to be telling you guys about um, the twin murder old-timey version. So we're going to start off in Rising Sun, Indiana. Lovely name. Very poetic. Uh, It's a little town. In 1900, the population was about 1550, and this story starts around 1903. 
Now it is a tiny place as you can tell from those numbers, but more people knew about it than you would expect. It was the setting for a very popular play titled Blue Jeans that premiered in 1890, which is the origin of the much copied buzzsaw scene in which somebody is like, Oh, getting, they're, they're going down they're the, to the log. Yeah, yeah. And, and the buzzsaw is coming up between the crotch and exactly. then the get very scene. nervous. Yeah, this was the, the first one of those. So, oh. like, everybody kind of knew that. So, yeah. Now, we're going to be talking about the Gillespie family. Hmm. They were one of the oldest and most influential families in the region. Uh, the matriarch and patriarch were Margaret Gillespie and her husband, William, who was a doctor. Now... You're in a small town, so people, they know you, you know? They, they know what you're like. And uh, it was said, quote, Though generally respected, it has been considered, it being the family, clannish, unforgiving, and revengeful. All of its members have been proud of their business and social standing. So there's a lot of pride here. And into this family were born uh, three children, followed by twins, Elizabeth and James. They were born. They're named after royalty, Queen Elizabeth, King James. Oh, yeah, that's entirely possible. Um, Probably. Because they fancy and they proud. I don't think... Uh, and Gillespie does sound like an English name. Too many of the other names in the family. There's an Annabelle, who's just called Belle. Um, I'm trying to remember Belle other names. And a Carrie. A Carrie. <laughs> Carrie's weird. Queen Carrie. And a Robert. <laughs> <laughs> Robert the Bruce. So, yeah, there you go. So, the twins, Elizabeth and James, were born March 26, 1865. And then uh, another sibling came along three years later, and then another one born at an unknown time. Kind of gets lost in the shuffle there. Yeah, that I, as the baby of the family, I can attest to that, yes. Yeah, eventually they just stop even noticing that they're having babies. Yep. <laughs> Where'd that one come from? Jeez. He's I, cut I your get nose that on. a lot. <laughs> so um, the parents, uh, Dr. Gillespie died in 1891. James and Elizabeth were in their mid-20s at that point. Now the living arrangements here, so it's the mother and her several children, and everybody's kind of living in the same area. Now we have Margaret Gillespie. In 1903, she'd been widowed for a dozen years. She was in her 70s with all adult children. And at this point in time, Elizabeth lived with her. They lived in a two-story frame house on the west side of the street. And on the east side of the street were three of the other siblings living in two adjoining houses. So James is living in one house with his sister, Belle Seward, who had been widowed. And then in the adjoining house were sister Carrie Barber and her husband. There were also um, two other adult Gillespie sons, William and Robert, who had moved out of town and... You know, one was a doctor, the other a farmer. But on this street, we have several Gillespies. And so uh, there are little bits of yard in front of the adjoining houses. There's an iron fence with an iron gate. That kind of becomes important because of going in and out of an iron gate. It makes a little bit of noise, you know. And then behind the Barber and Seward houses was a family they were friend with, the Boyles. Um, so there was a lot of over-the-fence kind of chatter. You can see how there's a lot of... People know their damn neighbors because they're related to half of them. Because <laughs> the Boyles, uh, guess what Margaret's maiden name was? 
<laughs> so I'm assuming probably cousins, although it was never specified. So yeah, this whole, imagine living on a street that's like, the ent- this entire family lives in like multiple houses and you just feel like an outsider. <laughs> like, mm. I'm just here while you all are like fighting about the Christmas ham or something. That sentence makes me want to drink. <laughs> I could not imagine living on the same street with any of my siblings. (laughs) No offense or offense. Depends on which one you are. I wonder if this particular family situation might lead itself to some... Murder. Maybe some murder. Murder. So, um, despite the fact that they lived across the street from each other, there wasn't a lot of chummy family togetherness anymore. Uh, gradually, their re- this is from the newspaper, gradually their relations with the mother and unmarried daughter ceased. This is speaking of James, Carrie, and Belle. Though living directly across the street from them, Mrs. Barber and Mrs. Seward never visited them, and James Gillespie, making his home with Mrs. Seward, continually added flame, fuel to the flame of his indignation until it developed into positive hatred. The two married sisters naturally sided with their brother and Mr. Barber with his wife. So we have a very clear delineation here. It's James and the two older sisters versus Elizabeth and mom. Which is why they're on different sides of the street. Exactly. They're, we are this close to somebody like taking a roll of tape and making a nice visible line that divides the families and you can't cross over to their side. You mean like they do on a street? Sure. <laughs> in my head, it's a small town and a dirt road, so I never even thought about the fact that, yes, there is, in fact, possibly a line painted on. <laughs> it might already be there. It might already be there. We're good. This is this entire situation is like a sitcom in a box. Well, the Model A was invented in 1903, so at that point, they would not have really had roads. There we go. Okay. So, okay. A line of horse shit <laughs> decorating the middle of the dirt street. There we go. You stay on your side of the dead horse, I'll stay on mine. <laughs> and nobody beat it. So um, all this division in the family came in the aftermath of their father's death regarding the split of the family property. Mm. Yep. Yep, money ruins everything. Uh, This sparked a minor feud among the siblings regarding his estate. And it it seems like now we're split permanently. And then that leads to geographically sometime in 1902, 1903-ish, when Margaret Gillespie deeded her property to Elizabeth and essentially cut James off. Uh, So James, at least, and the other siblings thought it should be divided equally. So the relationship is already fractured. That's another... So Elizabeth is staying with her mother, probably doing some caring and housekeeping sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the other ones don't even come to visit or really discuss with the mom. And so, yeah, they have every right to be pissed that the inheritance arrangement changed. I mean... Clearly that's logical. uh, Elizabeth had typhoid fever and was near Mm. death and none of them ever came and visited. They never call. They never write. That's kind of what I was thinking, because, like, at first, I'm like, why are they even mad? Because the dad dies, everything goes to the mom. It's not theirs yet. It's the mom's. Mm-hmm. Now you should be buttering up mom to make sure you get a piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. When it comes to family money, it seems like a lot of people want to count those chickens, and they're not even, the eggs haven't even been laid half the time. <laughs> just, enjoy, just enjoy time with your family. There you yeah. go. 
or glare at them from across the street. Whichever, whichever. So, and, Well, if you're going to glare at them from across the street, just don't be surprised if you get written out of the will. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actions have consequences. Kind of is what it is, man. So it seemed there was also some sort of like social division here because Elizabeth was called the intellectual leader of the town. She was said to be, quote, a lady of literary and musical attainments. She was a woman that could read. She could read several words. Uh, she was a handsome, cultured, and popular girl. She was undeniably the belle of Rising Sun. Boy, that's got to be a kick in the teeth for the actual belle of Rising Sun. Right? <laughs> her, like sister. her sister is named Belle. <laughs> she was of the blonde type, plump of figure, smiling of face, with the most affable and gracious manners imaginable. Barb is making faces. It was often remarked that she was a youthful addition of May Irwin, the actress. Aside from these engaging personal qualities, her study and wide reading had placed her naturally at the head of the artistic and literary element of this town. So what changed in society that smart and plump were like, oh my God, this woman, oh... It, like, that was, like, super <clears throat> desirable. I'm pretty sure what changed was the 90s. 40s. Yeah, 40s, yeah, some. I, I, but it, like, happened gradually because, like, at some point, smart women started being really scary and intimidating through the years. I really enjoyed um, having guys of my acquaintance in high school tell me to stop using so many big words. Mm. Enjoyed that. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah... Uh, I think maybe the plump thing might have happened, I think, more like 50s and 60s. I feel like that goes up and down. It possibly does, but I, I feel like it's more, see, you know, in the 50s and 60s with the housewives, they had them on a lot of stimulants because... Well, cocaine. Yes. In the soda, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's, and Barb just pointed to my uh, poster of Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there was a lot of that. Well, Audrey, she was malnourished from World War II. <laughs> she was just naturally small. Or not naturally, malnourishedly small. So, like... She was child abuse small. It was kind of almost like a cultural thing. Take your uppers so you can clean the house and be peppy and be happy for your husband because, you know, uh, you're kind of a poor put into a box and that not everybody fits into. And maybe you're not feeling super fulfilled, so take these pills. And also really another side effect those pills. is <laughs> making you skinny. And so, therefore, that might have been part of what instilled that but there were definitely some like, I love that it's coming back now though that like now we're looking at women that are curvier as like yes I don't think we should be going the fake curve route where you require photoshop but I do enjoy that we're like yes big asses are great because guess what they are <laughs> so I agree I agree it's it definitely is there's a swing happening and it's interesting to watch but it's slow so, yes, there's this, she's a popular smarty pants, and most of the family doesn't really like it. I like her. And it's a family full of pride and prone to grudges. I do, too. She's in a literary club. Like, she's artistic and musical. Um, so you have this really prone to grudges family. It's, it's starting to get so there's, everybody's got something under their skin. Actually, while I was working on this, all I could think of was the Tolstoy quote, um, all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. <laughs> and that's very true here. This is a unique kind of unhappy that has several different things fueling it. There's the jealousy of, of Elizabeth's social status. There's Elizabeth probably feeling a little bit resentful because they're not helping with their aged mother, you know? 
And then there's all of the, you know, social standing and the inheritance, all these factors. It's just a, a soup that has a very unique flavor. It's a unique soup of a murder. So... Murder ramen. <laughs> murder ramen. Oh, God, I want some murder ramen. Me too. And another factor here was Elizabeth was said to be quite stubborn. And townspeople said this was not just her and the family. She was not alone in that. Uh, she also had the stubborn Gillespie spirit. She did not seek to restore amicable relations between herself and her brother and sisters. On the contrary, she openly criticized the conduct of her relatives and redoubled her efforts to increase her own popularity. So she was like, you just gotta stay over there. I'm gonna stay over here. I'm not gonna try if you're not gonna try, you know? Suck it! Suck it! So on December 8th, 1903, it was a Tuesday. Elizabeth and James at this point are 38. They're still estranged. And on the docket for the evening at the Gillespie House is the monthly business meeting of the Women's Literary Club of Rising Sun. Oh. That kind of has a wonderful name, though. I, yeah, I know, right? Rising Sun just lends itself to so many, you know, good names for things. This epic stuff is happening at the business meeting of the things. Of the Rising Sun. The Literary Club of the Rising Sun. So, um, so activities at a regular, like, non-business meeting would have themed discussions. Uh, one of the... <laughs> I was looking up literary clubs and looking up their, like, particular events and, and themes. And um, the one theme was the development of sectional feeling. Sectional feeling... <laughs> Sectional feeling. I have no idea what that is, but... It's somebody that has a couch similar to yours <laughs> and just invites people over to sit on it. Okay, so I have sexual... Nope, sectional ah, feeling. Oh, you made it. you do it. <laughs> you made me do it. Brown chicken, brown cat. Oh. <laughs> they would have presentation of papers, damn it. And sketches of prominent literary heroes and book reviews. And this is seriously right up my freaking alley so much. So how many of those did you join during your research, just out of curiosity? In my head, seven. I'm busy every night this week, thanks. So before the meeting, Elizabeth had supper with her mother, who then retired to her room upstairs. Elizabeth then lit the lamps and then began setting up the parlor for the meeting. She was getting chairs and tables arranged. Now the blinds had not been closed yet. Elizabeth kind of surveyed the room. She was making sure she ticked off every item on her list. She had her back to the window and was facing a bright lamp. Uh -oh. This essentially backlit her for anyone outside. She's a silhouette. And there was someone outside, someone with a gun. Quote, the doomed girl had held this position but a moment when a gun was fired outside. The charge of heavy shot shattering a window pane and then entering the back of Miss Gillespie's head. Her mother heard the shot from her bedroom upstairs and also heard the heavy thump of a body falling to the floor. Quote, it was the latter which alarmed her, for it was the hunting season in Indiana and the discharge of shotguns was a familiar sound at all hours. I can understand that. Yeah. I mean... I have no idea how many times Jackson and I have looked at each other and been like, fireworks or guns? I mean, not that it matters, but just it, it, you, knowing which it is gives you an indication of how much longer you can expect it to go on. <laughs> so, fair. 
So yes, uh, Miss Gillespie dying with a gaping hole in her head lay alone in the parlor by the window until her aged and infirm mother crept down the stairs, found her slain, and alarmed the neighborhood with her shrieks. Some accounts have her remaining alive for a little while, long enough for her brother, Dr. William Gillespie, to get there and be by her side while she died. Um, it was said to be a number four bird shot from a double-barreled 12-caliber shotgun that killed her. Now, as for witnesses, there were not many because it was near the dinner hour, or what one newspaper called early candle hours. You just, it's getting late. It's dusk. Like, yeah, it's dusk. It's time to light the candles, you know? But, you know, they're going to be taller at this point. <laughs> so, early candle hours. Early candle hours. I want to start referring to dusk as that. Jackson, it's time to go take care of the ducks. It's early candle hours. So... Yeah, not too many witnesses. People aren't out and about right now. Uh, there were two men, both about a block away from the actual murder, but in opposite directions, who saw a flash and heard a gunshot. One of them did hear someone running and heard an iron gate click. The only iron gate on that block was the one that led to the siblings' houses. Across the streets. Exactly. From the murder. Murder. And the dead horse. So, <laughs> friends and neighbors rushed to the house, coming from every direction except one. They're not uh, coming over from the Barber and Seward houses. Um, the only person who left was Myron Barber, uh, the husband of Carrie Barber, one of Margaret's children. And so, the scene of their childhood home, where their mother is weeping over the dead body of their sister... And none of them, even that, can't bring any of them to talk to their mother, to enter that house. Either they're real assholes, or they weren't going to see what the trouble was, because maybe they knew what the trouble was? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Conjecture on my part. If I was the mother, I would, orig I would be immediately redoing my will and leaving everything to charity. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then Myron didn't rush over to comfort his mother-in-law or mourn his sister-in-law. No, he was uh, hurrying off to meet up with Belle's son, Earl, and ask him questions or talk to him. Now, keep in mind, there are neighbors everywhere and people, including the county auditor, James Corson. He was the one who noticed Myron and Earl having an intense discussion, and he heard what was said. Barber was clutching Seward's arm and saying, he ought not to have shot he ought not to have shot on account of the old grandmother. He would later deny this a lot, but there were other witness testimonies that hurt him. And including when one of them is the county auditor, you know, yeah. that'll count for something. So none of them bothered to go back that day or go to the funeral. None of them. The only sibling that uh, did anything was Dr. William Gillespie, the sibling who sat with her until she died. And really, the neighbors weren't even really that surprised. They didn't really think that there was going to be a reunion despite all the tragedy. So uh, there's a kind of a, an idea that this is something new in the newspapers. Is there something new, something ghastly beyond all precedent in the criminal history of civilization? Is it possible that a brother has wantonly murdered the sister that came into the world at the same moment that gave him birth? That twins 
always considered, even among savages, as representing the closest of all human ties and mutual trust and lifelong affection, have supplied a murderer and his victim? What do you think, Barb? Hell no, that ain't new. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, siblings actually have hated each other pretty much since mm, Cain and Abel. <laughs> oh, yeah, you went there. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a little bit. I mean, if they're saying that has one twin killed another twin, yeah, for sure that's happened. But the idea of any sort of sibling side? Fratricide or sororicide, I think, yeah. depending on whether yeah. it's a... Those sound like better words. sounds like a party. Um, <laughs> it really does. Yeah. It sounds like a drink you have at a party. <laughs> but, but or the slide you go down to the pool. Ooh, nice. Sororicide. <laughs> but no, siblings have been killing each other since siblings existed. Yeah. So, so sibling murder, not really all that new. Uh, but this style of murder was actually seen again very soon and kind of nearby. Twelve days later, uh, 200 miles away in Mount Carmel, Illinois, uh, Mrs. Adam Lacer, her birth name, Elizabeth Bridal. We have two Elizabeths getting murdered in the same way, 200 miles away, less than two weeks apart. That okay, is, now, that is statistically unlikely. That is weird. But not statistically impossible. Certainly not. Well, it did actually happen, so it clearly isn't impossible. And there's a lot of Elizabeths. It's just weird. I don't, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to rack my brains to, to think if I know any sets of twin twins with an Elizabeth. And I don't think I do. Well, like, almost, pretty much every story we've told so far today has had an Elizabeth. Your yeah. tiny had, didn't that have an, no, it was uh, Alice middle, Elizabeth, middle name. Yeah, middle name. Uh, mine had an Elizabeth uh, in my tiny that was one of the twins. Um, and here we have a little Elizabeth. She's not a twin that I know of. <laughs> but, like, Elizabeth's everywhere and then two Elizabeths. So, I don't know. It's, it's, it must have been a really popular name. Well, yeah, Queen Elizabeth. I know. They weren't very creative back then. <laughs> They just kept they on dipping into the same well, no matter how dry it got. <laughs> they didn't have a million baby name blogs to tell them That is true. Things. So she was uh, Mrs. Adam Lacer in all the papers, because God forbid we give the murder victim her own name. And she was born in Bavaria, Germany. She had three children with her husband, Adam. Two of them survived to adulthood, a son and a daughter. Uh, her husband had died in 1901. He'd been a farmer, done pretty well for the family, leaving her, quote, quite well fixed financially when he died. She lived in Mount Carmel near Cabbage Corner. So with her daughter and sister, uh, Elizabeth was 58. Her sister was said to be around 80, actually, and her daughter would be in her 30s. The daughter was actually at church this day, and Elizabeth and her sister were having supper together. It was around 7 p.m. Middle candle hours. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Late early. Late early candle hours, <laughs> yeah. yes. And so as they're having dinner, uh, a shot was fired through the window. And the front door had been open. The window curtains were up. The windows weren't locked. Her sister looked up to see blood spurting from Elizabeth's head. Elizabeth died instantly. Now, Margaret's son, William, lived an eighth of a mile away. So... The sister was able to just go out on the porch and yell for him, essentially. Again, we have these families living close, which is not unexpected in this time period. People, it seems like they either went really far away 
or stayed in the same exact place the entire time. So, um, and uh, he came, found that there was not really anything he could do to help. So then he, quote, called in some of the neighbors and then later many from the congregation at church. So he's running to neighbors' houses and being like, hey, hey, my mom was shot. And then he runs into the church. Like, what? You guys want to see a body? Everybody want to see a dead body? Okay, I'll let you, like, you know, finish your prayer thingy or whatever you're doing there. It's just, it's just very weird. And uh, another account said he rushed back home and had his wife telephone the neighbors. So, which is also weird. if, If you're there, I don't know. If you're there and you have to run around and tell everybody, which is weird. So the uh, sheriff, deputy sheriff, and state's attorney didn't get to the scene until two and a half hours after the murder, which the paper said was a little bit of a problem for the investigation, and they found not a single clue that night. No footprints, no marks left on the house or property, and nothing missing. They go for her son-in-law or ex-son-in-law first, but it turns out that he uh, had been completely out of town and was able to have that vouched for uh, the entire time. So he wasn't it. So then they check out the son, you know, Mr. Knocks on neighbor's doors and runs to tell the church and they get some statements from witnesses and then they charge him with murder. But then the grand jury convened and decided even after talking to over 100 witnesses uh, not to indict mainly because of the fact that they talked to 100 witnesses. And so they figured... We'll talk to this many, maybe more, at trial. This is a another little town. Let's not spend the county's money. Well, if nobody actually saw anything... I do think they didn't have enough to actually bring charges. Yeah. So, but sometimes I didn't Like, it sounds them. like they turned over a lot of stones and found nothing there. They at least turned over a couple, but the investigation, to be fair, did not last long. Okay. <laughs> so, so, back to Rising Sun... Uh, regarding the murder weapon, there were two men in town who owned 12 caliber shotguns. Why they think it's physically impossible for anyone from out of town to own one of those and also use it in town is beyond me, but that's the logic we're going they with. They already had a good idea of who did it. They had a couple ideas, yeah. Um, now, one man was able to prove that his gun hadn't left the house the day of the murder, which, okay, sure. And the other man was James Gillespie. Shocker. What do you know? Now, just a few days after the Lacer murder happened 200 miles away, James and his family were having a not very merry Christmas. James was charged with murder in the first degree, as were Myron Barber, Carrie Barber, and Belle Seward. So we're going a conspiracy angle here. Well, yeah. So James was the principal, they said, and they said that the others were accessories before and after the fact, but they were still being charged with murder in the first and conspiracy. So they actually have more charges than he does, it would appear. Uh, They were turned themselves in on December 22nd. Now, the photographer tried to get a shot of James as they were going from the carriage to the police station, and James had a bit of a reaction to that. He, quote, broke away from Sheriff Rump and knocked the camera from the hands of the newspaper man. End quote. Oh, yes, Barr, your hand, your hand is up? Sheriff Rump? Oh, would you like to know Sheriff Rump's first name? Oh, I sure do. Sheriff Harry Rump. Harry Rump. Oh. <laughs> I lost it. There, that was one of the times when I had to like get up from my reach and be like, Jackson! <laughs> Jackson, I got a Sheriff Harry Rump. 
<laughs> Were you just looking for people with like funny names? <laughs> I wasn't. It, they find me. I don't have to find them. <laughs> they come and they track me down. Harry Rump. Well, you had Ed, Edgar. Edgar. That's right. Amber had Edgar in her her time. I, I for enjoy Edgar. Edgar is. It's hard. It's hard to say. It's tough for me at least. So. Now James was denied bail, but the others managed to get out quickly. And uh, they plead, all of them, not guilty. And this town very much has a small-town vibe, and therefore this murder trial has a small-town vibe. Quote, a courtroom where judge, jury, witnesses, defendants, and spectators have known each other since their school days. It is almost as though the town's inhabitants were all members of one family, imbued with the family instinct to protect its members, even from just punishment. One citizen when examined for jury service said they are my friends i cannot give them a fair and impartial trial another said they were schoolmates of mine i do not feel it would be right for me to serve as a juror in judgment upon them so mama gillespie testified they did manage to get a jury together somehow <laughs> found a couple people who had only you know known them since they were four i don't know they went and got the hermits that were living out in the woods. And they're like, I'm sorry, you guys are going to have to serve. You don't, you're the only one that doesn't know anybody. And they're like, who? James? Yeah, he's my bud. So uh, Mama Gillespie testified. The state was kind of considering her their star witness. But the thing was is that she was in quite delicate condition. And so they couldn't really press her too hard on anything. Basically, she broke down on the third question and had to be led weeping from the stand by James. Oh, that's kind of sweet, though. But he's on trial for murder. Not hers. <laughs> well, no, she's there and alive. <laughs> he's just trying to help his mom. Yeah. Innocent until proven guilty. Yes, yes, I'm with you. Carrie and Myron Barber were both called to the stand. Um, it's really interesting, the disparity in how they were treated by the press. So here is the description of their testimonies. This little woman proved herself one of the most remarkable witnesses ever heard in Southern Indiana. Her conduct was in contrast to that of her husband, Myron, who was uneasy and restless. He was pale, his voice weak, and his replies evasive. His attempts to make emphatic answers were pitiful. So he looks like a fucking criminal. I guess so, yeah. Yeah. A bad one. I think probably the most dramatic moment of the trial was uh, when the DA asked Myron regarding his hatred of Elizabeth. Is it not true that she has told you James Gillespie was intimate with your, your wife? <laughs> uh, his sister? That would, yep. Mm -hmm. I was, I was going to make sure everybody knew that they're, they're talking about his sister. <laughs> yep, that objection was sustained. Um, the sheriff, good old Harry Rump, it's fun to say. <laughs> I want to make it like a trademark or like a product name, like Harry Rump's Salve <laughs> or something like that. Old-fashioned wax and powder. Old Harry Rump's old-fashioned wax and powder for when your Harry Rump needs a waxing. <laughs> um, so on that same day, uh, he testified, Harry Rump, that... The fraught relationship between the twins the past few years. I even I even screenshotted Sheriff Harry Rump and saved that in my document. Indeed you did. 
to make sure that you guys didn't think I make this shit up. We have witnessed the hairy rump. <laughs> yes. And then also that same day, there was testimony from a woman who said she had seen James knock Elizabeth down and beat her one time. Now, this would be less believable if that very day, James hadn't charged after Sheriff Harry Rump in the jail yard, jumped on him, beat him to the ground, and shouted, I'll get even with you. I'll fix you for what you said about me. Yeah, you're, that doesn't, that's not a good look. It doesn't really work out for your, your whole uh, I'm innocent thing. So the deputies overpowered him and locked him up, and from his cell he yelled, Open this door, I'll teach you to lie about me. The judge heard about this and remarked, These displays of temper by Jim Gillespie won't do him any good. Exactly. Yeah. This uh, did seem to change the minds of some townspeople who previously had been willing to believe in his innocence. So yeah, it's having the exact effect anyone would expect. He did take the stand, and they, uh, they described his outfit. He was attired in a neat steel-colored suit and wore a lay-down linen and fumbled a fashionable watch fob as he faced the 12 men who have his life in their hands. A small yellow flower was in a buttonhole. So he said that the day of the murder, he just, it was just a normal day. He did some farm work. He went home at five for supper. He ate with Belle and her son. And uh, around 5.15, 5.30 is when he, you know, was going to do some laundry and he heard the shot. Now, we also had him denying some of the previous testimony that had come, including stuff like uh, he had said that Elizabeth flirted with every man she saw, that she was a hypocrite in the church, and uh, that a friend had told him he should, quote, throw vitriol in her eyes if she didn't quit peeping at ya. Quit peeping at ya. I just love peeping. It's a Wait, who is he saying? Who is being peeped a, upon? A friend told James, basically, that, that Elizabeth, I think she, he means, like, she was giving him, like, nasty looks. Okay. Something like that. And he said, if she keeps that up, you should throw vitriol in her eyes. That's his friend advising him. Now, it seems like, despite all of this, like, it's kind of coming out what the public thinks about him and that they know of some of his shenanigans and abuse towards his sister. Um, but the family is kind of coming together some. When the jury was released to deliberate, James and his mother clasped hands. Um, it was said that after the murder, she had said over and over, if only Jim would come to see me. If only he would come to tell me. Oh, if he would even tell me that he killed my Beth, his sister, I could take him to my heart. Oh, if I but knew. So even if he confessed, in fact, she would prefer it, if he murdered her, for him to tell her, if he murdered Elizabeth, then she would still be able to forgive him just as long as he actually said it. So it seems like... I mean, knowing who killed your child, you, you want to know. Yeah. So, even if it's your other child. Mm -hmm. So, the jury goes to deliberate. Want to take guesses at how long they deliberated for? 37 minutes? Six hours. 42 hours. Damn! Yes. They deliberated for 42 hours and could not come to an agreement. It was one of the more contentious mistrials I've ever seen. Quote, seven of the best men in the county voted according to their conscientious opinions, and none is ready to condemn them for their actions. So seven out of 12 thought that he should be acquitted. 
Because there were buddies with him. Well, they said there was not enough evidence to I, prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I didn't hear a lot of evidence. I mean, there's some stuff that I brushed over. Okay. Um, in, for, in the interest of time. Um, but a lot of it is uh, the Iron Gate. Um, and, and then... The only other person with a 12-gauge. The only Something person with, with a wee idea. bit of wind could have affected... Sorry. And so, like, there's, there's that, and that so much of it was character-related. So... You know, reading through the testimony, like, five people say the same thing. I'm going to condense it down to one. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but it's really, it's motive, it's weapon, and it's proximity. Means motive opportunity. Yeah. He does have them all. That is true. So, this really... Weirdly, there were, like, three suicides that were attributed to this entire court case. Was Hillary Clinton there? <laughs> one from a man named Aduskas Grewe. Grewe? I have no idea. G-R-E-I-W-E. Let me see if I can highlight it. I cannot. I would say Gray. Gray, sure. Gray? Gray. August Gray had originally been on the jury, but one side objected to his presence, and it seems like he was kicked off, possibly due to mental health issues. And when he didn't even wait for the verdict, he died by suicide while the jury was deliberating and seemed to seemed to be kind of afraid that James was going to come and get him, but didn't even wait to see what the verdict was. I don't know. And then they, there were two other people who were counted as being so affected by the, the case and the trial that they, they died by suicide. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Do you think they misunderstood what a hung jury meant? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Starting to wonder, to be true, to be fair. So, and it was also said that people did believe that James was the shooter in general in town. That seemed to be the majority opinion, but they were willing to abide by the law and not lynch him. There were sometimes fears <laughs> that they were going to break into the jail, but they never lasted very we'll long. We'll be nice. We'll be nice. We won't drag him out and hang him. The prosecution says they're going to try again, and they're still casting their wide net. They're including the Barbers and Bell Seward, who remain indi indicted but are out on bail. Prosecutors said that he would make it his life's work to land them in prison and hang James if possible. And so they do put him on trial again in December. Uh, it's, it's like six months after the first trial. Somewhere else, hopefully. Still in the same, same town, as far as I'm aware. And a lot of the trial is really similar they do bring up uh, some more evidence they found, like Elizabeth's life insurance. Mm. She had a policy for two thousand, and uh, that's about three hundred thirty-nine thousand today. No small sum. When uh, when to receive this compensation, as it would be measuring worth, changed their various categories of modern valuations. So there's new stuff. Hmm. And um, so uh, guess who was the beneficiary? Was it James? Uh huh. Oh snap! Yeah. Really? Yeah. Weird. And that was, of course, still kind of hanging around because... Did she make that life insurance policy? Because back then, anyone could. That is true, but it did seem to say that she... The, the, the sense that I got was that she, she put, took out the policy herself. Hmm. But you're right that just about anybody could. I mean, H.H. H. Holmes did a lot of that shit just like, you know, 10, 15 years before. If not sooner, I can't remember his years. But anyhow, so... And then they brought that up. Um, some more discussion of the violence, bruises on Elizabeth's arms, striking her to the ground with a piece of wood. So they, they had a little bit 
it seemed more evidence to work with, more motive, more examples of his past behavior. And uh, a lot seemed to be made of Margaret Gillespie's statement after the murder, what was the wording? Because in court, there was very much an argument. One side said she had stated, I just have to walk down the street to find the murderer. The other side said she had stated, I just have to walk across the street to find the murderer. So that is definitely curious. Curious indeed. Curious and curiouser. And so one thing that really stuck out to people was words, words, was the costs involved in this trial because this is the second trial for this case this year. Each trial had last, lasted weeks. And this, this county is the smallest county in the state, smallest population of any county in the state as well. They're not overflowing with cash, you know. And um, this is also a, a trials that are involving a lot of bigwigs. You've got uh, on the... As far as closing arguments are concerned, we had closing arguments from a captain, a congressman, and a senator. Oh. So these are all the people, they're lawyers brought in because this is, this is really kind of became... It's a parade. Yeah. Became a little bit of a circus. Uh, this time, it only took how long for the verdict to come? 37 minutes? Six hours. Wow, you guys are surprising me today. Three hours. Me in the middle. Me in the middle. So three hours. And uh, there was a disagreement between these juries too, but it was whether he would get uh, life imprisonment or the death penalty. Three of them wanted the death penalty, so they agreed to his guilt, and they decided to go with life imprisonment. The crowd cheered at hearing the guilty verdict. So he's off to the penitentiary, where he works in the storeroom and maintains a record of good behavior. And they let him out. <laughs> and the others never get tried for uh, any part they might have had. Early 1906, Mama Gillespie dies of a broken heart, as they put it, but also pneumonia. Uh, Daughter Belle was at her side. So they, there was a reconciliation. Was and, there or did you just come to find the will? Well, that's also a good question. And uh, Margaret Gillespie was 81 when she passed. Now, in April 1907... She'd only hung around for a little bit while longer. Uh, the Supreme Court ordered the judgment discharged from further prosecution on the ground that it was double jeopardy to try him twice because apparently the first jury was discharged because one juror was said to be distantly related by marriage to the Gillespies and the court maintained in the final judgment that the juror should not have been released unless deemed incompetent and thus the first jury should have been sat. So since they sat a second jury, somehow that became double jeopardy. So after serving less than two years, he was out, he Damn was it. free, he went home. He immediately had some work to do. He was made administrator of his uncle John Gillespie's estate. And uh, so it seems like the family still trusted him. He lived with Belle until her death in 1923 and then continued on in that same home with his nephew until the nephew... Um, died in 1934. James was the last remaining of his siblings. They had all passed um, by the late 30s. He did not marry. He had no children that I'm aware of that I could find. And uh, in September 1938, at 73 years old, he was standing in his front lawn 
when he died by suicide. So that was um, his ending. <laughs> kind of a surprising one. Didn't expect it to go that far. And I, I don't know. The, the fact that he... I hope Elizabeth haunted his ass every oh. single day. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if she did, and I wouldn't blame her a bit. She just follows him around reading him books out loud. <laughs> so, yeah, that is, uh, sorry for that kind of weird ending. There's nowhere else to go, though. The whole but entire really, family was dead. That That is the end. That is the end, yeah. That's, that's how some stories end. <laughs> that is how some stories end. All right, well, while we are talking about twins, I have one for you guys. So I am going to be telling you about Pete and Pat Fondurant. There we go. I was really surprised that we haven't gotten an alliterative twin name at some point, because it's always Mike and Matt, Mm -hmm. or Alice and Abby, or Betty and Beef, and it's just... (laughs) Betty and... Who... Do you... Do you know... No. I know a guy named Beef. I lit his face on fire one time. See, I knew. I knew oh, yeah, that time I knew. that Amber lit Beef's face on fire. <laughs> yep. He still doesn't grow hair in one patch. <laughs> but yeah. I'm an Amber. My brother's Adam. So, like, we're not twins, but we, we're close in age. We're, like, not Irish twins, but close enough. Mm-hmm. So, Adam and Amber. And then it was really great for family reunions with Adrian, Allen, and Andrew. So, like, the we were all very similar in age, and the, they would try to yell at us, and it was just, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> So, like, uh, probably a family trait that ran uh, on, on some side of the family was, it doesn't get very far in the baby name book. <laughs> <laughs> could be. Could be. It's like, well, I'm on page three. All right. I'm just going to mm, share that one. <laughs> well, so the messed up thing is their names are actually not Pete and Pat. They went by Pete and Pat, but their names were... Uh, Hugh Peter or Hugh Patterson. I can't remember which one was Hugh. One of them was Hugh. I can understand why they didn't go by that. And Pat is short for Patterson, which I thought stood out in my brain. But they went by Pete and Pat. Anyway. Did Pete have a different first name or was it just... They both had different first names. I can't remember what the other one was because it was boring. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. They were born April of 1955. They were raised by both parents in Tennessee. Their parents were both military contractors. Now, Pete and Pat were big boys. Big boys. By seventh grade, they were both over 250 pounds. Those are big kids. Those are big kids. So they were uh, really super proud of being weird and different. And we're happy to fight the other kids about it. Because they're probably the same size as the teachers, if not larger. So they will happily pick a fight with anybody. Just because they want to. And uh, spoiler alert here. According to Killer Siblings on Oxygen, the twins both had a short fuse and could get violent with very little urging. Mm. (laughs) As... You could tell in seventh grade, really. So we've got double trouble here. Double trouble. They did manage to stay out of trouble for, like, high school. So born in 1955. First violence we have is 1975. So they'd be 20. 
So there were 20, and Pete was in Cincinnati, where he lived with two men and two women. The two women went out to grab some smokes one night, and when they returned, Pete answered the door with a bloody knife. Not a good look, Pete. Not a good look. What were you doing, Pete? You're next, he said. Ooh, rude. Well, the women were like, just you, Pete, whatever, and they shoved past him. They push past him at the door with a bloody knife. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> Just real quick. It's like number two on knife, knife safety. Never, <laughs> never push past a man wielding a knife. Bloody knife in hand. You're next. And they're like, ha, 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 Pete, get out of my way. You old so-and-so. Such a joker, this one. Until they get into the apartment and they see one of their roommates lying on the couch bleeding profusely. And the other... On the floor, also bleeding. Gee, I wonder how that happened. Am hmm? I next? <laughs> nah. That Immediately, I would have, like, fucking bolted because he is now behind you with a bloody knife. <laughs> and you have two other roommates that are bleeding out in the living room. Like, oh, my God. So, anyway. Brain broken, those poor girls somehow did not get stabbed by the grace of God. The two male roommates, one of them had suffered knife injuries, but did live. The other roommate was stabbed repeatedly, mostly with a screwdriver. Ooh. I love that phraseology. Mostly with a screwdriver. Ah. So some other weapons thrown in there just for giggles. And variety is the Uh One article said he was stabbed like over forty times. Oh, that's not proper. So that's not proper. So absolutely not one bit of this is proper. No, Barb. it's gonna get <laughs> so much darker. Just wait. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do your squeakies. Squeak, squeak the chair. Squeak the chair. <laughs> so Pete is arrested on the spot. Obviously. No surprise there. And would not give a reason as to why he did what he did to anybody at all. He was still convicted and sentenced to 25 years in jail. But he was let out after five years because prison was overcrowded and he was from out of state. I think we're... That's not where I expected this to go. <laughs> no, we're, oh, it's going to get so much worse. So, the twins get reunited because Pete is now out of jail, so he goes back home to the lovely town of Elkton, Tennessee, where he and his brother Pat move into a lovely farmhouse together and start selling drugs. Oh. Sure. <laughs> As you do. As you do. Late 70s at this point. Yeah, well, we're looking at 1980 now. Okay. We're about 1980. Shoulder pads are starting to happen. Yeah, and these big boys now are selling drugs out of a farmhouse, because why not? Their business was booming, and they had quite a following. They had a nickname, the Bondurant Boys, because huh. we really like alliteration. Pete and Pat Bondurant Boys. <laughs> they were very popular. Hard partying, generous, 
and could get any drug you could think of, which is probably why they were popular. Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah. Yeah. Especially late 70s, early 80s, this is a popular time to do drugs. Mm-hmm. Happens. Now, the Bondurant boys are about 350 pounds apiece. Big boys. Big boys. Big boys. And still really fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) So Pat's favorite gag would sit and eat a pound of raw hamburger in front of people just to freak them out. What the hell? And he would eat the whole pound. He was like... This was like a common thing that he did for new people, I guess. (laughs) Welcome to my home. Please sit and watch me eat this pound of raw meat. I mean, did he season it? Like, did we get like a nice little egg on top? It's raw. I doubt it. It's raw. Maybe (laughs) salt. I I imagine just the way that these boys are described, ketchup. It's just ham fisting it. Yeah, like ham fisting, maybe dipping it in ketchup. You guys like some ASMR on that? (laughs) Thank you for that. That made me cringe a little bit. Editor Christy is very excited to get to that part. I died inside. (laughs) So the two were still trying to avoid attention from the police because, I mean... 350-pound men who eat raw pounds of burger are completely... Under the radar. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially when they're dealing drugs out of a farmhouse that is very popular. Draws no attention here. None. But they came under investigation because somebody that went over to party with them, nobody ever saw her again. Mm. Hmm. 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 So Gwen Duggar was at their ranch May 30th of 1986. She was 24 years old, a single mom from Ardmore, Alabama. Pete and Pat had been working on her brother Ken Swanner's car, and when it was all done, her brother was going to leave, and she was hanging out with the brothers and two other guys that were there, and she's like, I'm having a really good time. Turns out she actually already knew the brothers. She'd been buying Vicodin off of them. This is the 80s. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Valium. My bad. Wrong V. (laughs) Wrong V. So she's already met them a handful of times. She feels safe enough with them, and she wants some Valium. So she goes, no, no, no. It's fine. I'm going to stay here and party. Pat said he'll take me home later. And uh, you have a good night. The two other guys there that night were Gary Harden and Dwayne Howell. So they all hung out, drank, smoked weed. And then they start looking for her because nobody ever sees her after that night. But the police couldn't do anything because, guess what they never got? A warrant? A body. Ah, no body, no crime. Which is exactly what the brothers would walk around bragging about. Creepy. No, no, you don't say that. No. Yeah, because everybody knew they were the last ones to see her. But you can't say the last one to see her alive. Yeah. Because you don't know. And the brothers would literally be like, what body? There's no body. There was no crime. And while no body, no crime homicides can be prosecuted now, this was the 80s before DNA, probably a little bit rarer. Yeah. And it's already, it already can be pretty rare now, but. 
I mean, you don't even know if she's dead or alive. Maybe she ran away. There's too many aspects of reasonable doubt you can introduce. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. And especially when you don't have modern tools. So even though the police really wanted to get Pete and Pat, there was nothing they could do. They couldn't even prove that a crime had occurred. All they had was her brother saying, she was there, that was the last time I saw her, I don't know where she's gone. So in October of that same year, that's the end of May, in October of that same year, the siblings' names came up again. They had an acquaintance by the name of Ronnie Gaines that suddenly disappeared. Is that name familiar to you? Is that why you made that look, Barb? Yeah, Ronnie Gaines sounds familiar. Does it sound familiar to you? Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know either. Um, so Ronnie worked at the rubber plant with Pat. He was well-liked. His nickname was Hippie. Wonder how he and Pat knew each other. <laughs> Bet we can guess... So, police discovered, after Ronnie had gone missing, that Pat had blamed him for stealing his wallet. So, there was already, okay, well, you, you accused him publicly of stealing your wallet. So, there's motive. There's still no body. Yeah, it sounds like he's just got beef with him. Mm, yeah, you did that. Love it. Beef. Beef. <laughs> so Pat and Ronnie were at a party and playing cards when the wallet supposedly went missing. And this was a, like, point of contention for weeks. That Pat was just, like, couldn't let it go, kept accusing him of it. At work, when they're hanging out, doesn't matter. It's like, mm. I know you took my wallet. It's like me and that bitch that stole my silver pencil in second grade. You still remember her name, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm not going to say it on the air, but I still remember her. Okay. We'll talk later. <laughs> but again, Ronnie has just disappeared. There is no body. And his house is burnt to ashes. Oh. No mm. house, no crime. <laughs> Immediately, the fire marshal is like, this is arson. They bring Pat in for questioning, and Pat arrives with his lawyer. Which is sus. But also kind of smart. Because oh, we know no. we, we know. never go to the cops without, without representation. Lawyer. Yes, exactly. No, I fully, we have the, the right. The innocent need to be protected the most. Yes. We have the right to have an attorney present. If you have that right and you financially can in any way, shape, or form, why not take advantage of it? I hate this idea that somebody is immediately suspicious, though. You know me. I hate that. Oh, just wait. <laughs> I mean, okay. it is. It is. Amber's bringing this up ironically. It's smart. <laughs> yeah. But it is sus. So, Pat shows up with his sussy lawyer. <laughs> and he says, I have an alibi by the name of Terry Lynn Clark. That's my girlfriend. And we were out of town that night. So investigators call Terry. They set up an interview with her for November 18th of 1986. But on November 16th, Pete and Pat call the police and say Terry's dead. Oh. This is where we start to get awkward. Yeah, that's, uh, that's some timing right there. Well, Terry, Pat's 
girlfriend died in bed with Pete. In okay. They say that、uh, they're very calmly. She either died in her sleep or of an overdose. So now at least we have a body. Yeah. But they couldn't prove anything with that body, so that case went dormant、mm. after a little while. Nothing they could do there. There's a couple more years before we get a lucky break. 1989 rolls around, and Denise Bondurant comes forward. She was Pat's wife. Aha.、Uh-huh. Yeah, it gets weird now. So Denise didn't want to talk to police at all, but she did cut a deal that she would tell them everything if they gave her immunity, because she had some dirty hands in all this. Oh no! Ooh. So she got her immunity, and then she starts talking, singing like a canary. So let's start with Gwen. She said that she saw the siblings assault her, and she told the whole story of that night. So one of the extra men that was there, Harden, made a pass at Gwen, but Pat pulled a thirty-eight caliber out and said, "Pete's going to have her first because he bought her drugs." Jesus. They plied her with a ton of pills throughout the evening, not just the Valium, some other stuff too. Then Pete took Gwen into the bathroom and had sex with her. She was barely conscious. Raped her. Yes. Yes. Denise walked in on it. She went back to the kitchen to finish cooking dinner. She said at that point she thought Gwen was like awake, and so was like, "Oh, okay, sorry," and just went back to cook dinner. She finishes dinner and then she goes to find her husband. Pat having sex with Gwen. Oh goodness! Raping Gwen. Denise was pregnant at the time. Super hormonal. Took her a while to realize what was happening, but she immediately started screaming and slapping at what she thought was the couple, until she slapped Gwen across the face and realized that she was completely unconscious. Good lord! So, like, Gwen was just. Getting raped. Yeah, but just, how did Denise not see this already? Like, I, I would well, think you'd be able to tell. So, well, Gwen these are three hundred and fifty men. True. All you see are feet. Really. <laughs> true. True. So, and and then she said that Pat didn't even care that he had been caught. He went right back to doing what he was doing. Oh God. So Denise kicked out Harden and Hal, the two other men that were there. Oh yeah, that's they're the problem. <laughs> no, she just she just kicked them out so they could get the hell away. Now Pete and Pat both lived there with her, so she's like, "I'm not staying here. This is awful," and she packs her shit to bounce. In one version of events, she did leave, but came back thirty minutes later. To find Gwen naked and incoherent, but like kind of waking up. And right after she came back, Denise says that Pat then started beating Gwen with an axe handle.、Jeez. He swung it down on her head with all of his might. He struck her ten or twelve times. 
Now, there is a different version of this that is a little bit more gruesome. So all of that kind of runs coherent, but during the trial, she said that um, they, they had hit her with the axe handle, and then after they got her beaten down, they tried to rape her again, at which point she began to lose control of her bodily functions. It was at that point that Pete said he was just going to put her out of her misery. So Pete allegedly shot her twice in the head. The brothers then put her body in garbage bags, burned it in a 55-gallon drum on the property over the next three days. They spent burning this body just to get it gone. And then they took that whole barrel and dumped it in the Elk River. She had a six-year-old son that she left behind. So that is a lovely story. But she wasn't done. She had more to say. She is quite literally the person who knows where all the bodies are buried. Sounds like. Or burned and dumped. Barreled. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so, we find the next piece of this puzzle. Ronnie Gaines. Oh, oh, Pat did have a comeback to his wife, Denise, by the way. He gave a very brief statement. My wife, Denise C. Bondurant, shot Gwen Duggar with her twenty-two pistol. I am sorry Gwen Duggar is not alive. Wow. That was his entire statement. So contritious. Now, Ronnie Gaines. Apparently what really happened with this wallet that was missing is that Pete had gone to a bar and lost it, but didn't recall that, so he just blamed Ronnie. So, the night of Ronnie's disappearance, they were playing cards, drinking beer, eating pizza. Pat accused Ronnie again of stealing the wallet. Ronnie was like, I didn't do that. Pat got mad and took a child's wooden rocking chair and beat him to death until the chair was nothing more than splinters. Oh, my. Then he and his brother used Ronnie's bathtub to hack up the body into bits and then buried parts of the body around the property. But because they used his bathtub to hack him to bits, they had to burn the house down to hide the blood evidence. Oh, goodness. So, Which really wouldn't work in the long run because the blood would get down through the pipes of the tub, but you wouldn't be looking for that kind of evidence. So I guess it worked. Not, it, yeah, I guess not in a total fine. loss kind of fire, yeah. Yeah, if nothing else, it would at least make it harder to find. Yeah. But now we have Terry Lynn Clark, our alibi, right? Alibi that suddenly dies before she gets questioned. So somebody came forward to say that they had seen Pete forcing dose after dose of a sedative into Terry's body the day of her death. Now we have witness statements for all three murders. 
The police did a search around the property. They tried to gather as much forensic evidence that they could to bolster the case. And the brothers were arrested in April of 1990. Pat was picked up at his job at Pulaski Rubber Co. on a Tuesday. Pete was picked up the next day in a police roadblock. And I'm going to tell you more about that later. Foreshadowing. (laughs) Now, Pete started at Lawrence County Jail and was then transferred to the Riverbend Maximum Security Prison in Nashville because he had apparently threatened a witness in one of the cases. Not Gwen's because that was the first one up for trial, but one of the other cases he had threatened one of the witnesses. I'm going to guess that last one because that witness remained unnamed. So I'm thinking that's the witness that he threatened. For most people in the world, when you threaten a witness, there are consequences. Yeah, well, they just moved him to a different prison. That was his consequence at the time. Uh, The brothers were held in different counties because they decided that they would be a flight risk. And it was noted that because of how large they were, there was a concern about them being able to work together to overpower guards. So they wanted them very far apart. The brothers were arraigned for Gwen's murder, April 23rd of 1990. That day would have been her 28th birthday. Huh. So, once on trial, and I'm just going to kind of breeze through this, Pat was found guilty of the murder of Gwen Duggar, as well as Ronnie Gaines. He was sentenced to life in prison. And he is currently incarcerated at the Northeast Correctional Complex in Mountain City, Tennessee, where his next parole hearing is uh, actually listed as this year. But I could not find anything, so I'm guessing that was denied. (laughs) His, uh... There were burned bones of Ronnie Gaines found on the property. That was some of the evidence that they, they did have. Now, Pat was convicted of the murder, and Pete was convicted of helping his brother dismember the body. Pete was found guilty of the murders of Gwen Duggar and Terry Lynn Clark. Additionally, he was convicted on one count of arson for his involvement of burning down Ronnie's house. And then uh, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for Gwen's murder. Terry's murder gave him another 15 years. And unfortunately, he only served about 25 years before being released in December of 2016. Nobody knows where he went. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm sure the prison does, but I don't know if he's going by a different name. He has gotten very private. And nobody really knows where he is. I'm sure the prison does, but they're not going to tell us. So, after the trial, this is where we get some interesting information. You remember that roadblock? Mm-hmm. So, apparently, allegedly, <laughs> the twins' parents have a lawsuit after the trial is over that they were illegally detained while their sons were being arrested. The suit is seeking a quarter million dollars due to Pete Bondurant Sr. having a seizure while they were detained April 11th of 1990. Now, I'm just going to call mom and dad from here on out because the Pete Pat thing is really old. (laughs) 
So dad had called the Giles County Sheriff's Department to confirm that he and mom were driving Pete in to surrender himself. He made this call. He gets it all cleared. He drives with his wife and his son to surrender his son. The car is stopped and surrounded by police. Mom and dad were ordered to get out of the car, put their hands on the roof. And if they did not, the police would shoot to kill. Hmm. So once out of the car, dad tells police he has a bad back and a heart condition. Police then ordered the couple, regardless of the statement, to kneel on the pavement and lie spread eagle face down. While they arrested Pete from the vehicle. So they get Pete without too much incident, no struggle or anything like that. But at some point, dad had some sort of heart issue. They call it a seizure. It's But then the wife saved the day with nitroglycerin. So to me, that sounds like a heart attack. That's a heart problem. Yeah. And then even after that, they were not allowed to leave the scene until their son was removed from the scene. Probably for safety reasons, I would assume. So... Lots of peas here. So Polly Bondurant died in Pulaski, Tennessee on July 28th, 2010. And this was really interesting because a lot of sources said that it was only Pete and Pat. There was another sibling. Oh. Nobody ever talked about the other sibling, which I thought was really weird. But uh, the other the other sibling was a son named Sidney. You try saying that one. Wow. Uh, it was Hugh Peter Bondurant is the full name. My bad. I was mixing up the Hugh. And Kenneth Patterson Bondurant are the twins. Pete and Pat. Pete and Pat is way better than Hugh and Ken. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Don't if like you that. say them too fast, it sounds like you're... Hugin. 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 Oh, man, I am so hungover. I'm going to huke it. Now, <laughs> dear old dad lived to be 77, passed away January 6th of 2000, also in Tennessee. And I did skip over one page, but I don't remember what was on it. So I don't know if it was uh, anything useful or not. I did try to look to find out, like, what happened to the rest of the people. I didn't find too much there. Um Oh, yeah, here. So, Bondurant lost his wallet containing about $300 belonging to his disabled son in a tavern, but mistakenly thought Gaines had had it. So, this is the only mention I have of a disabled son. I'm guessing that's um, the child Denise was pregnant with during Gwen's murder, but never got a name. But that child is still probably very much alive, which makes sense. So, Well, that's at least nice that they're not dragging some poor person who has no involvement in any of this you know well there was a lot of mention too that he would accept drug payments in sex and so it's it's quite possible he has several illegitimate children might not be the same one so that's fun uh lovely lovely people uh that are still alive which is really weird to tell stories about it is it is i think that's one of the reasons we don't do the timey after timey so often is we only have so much tolerance for modern stories and telling stories about people who are still alive modern stories can be downers though because it, it 
I think there's something in all of our hearts that wants us to feel like the world has gotten better. Mm -hmm. And so being faced with these things and these people that are still out there and having to like wonder. Yeah. I feel, I feel yuckier with these than I do with like the old ones. Cause at least like everybody's dead. Like they're they're getting their vengeance in the afterlife and, (laughs) um, yeah, these, these make me feel yucky. And it's also this, this idea that, um, like the past is a different world, you mm-hmm. know? So when you're telling the older stories, it's like it happened, you know, almost on some other planet. You know, this happened on Pluto. Uh, <laughs> and we're never just saying we're both Pluto proponents. <laughs> I, I have a Pluto mug. It's messed up, right? I love me some Pluto. Uh, I do have a mug. I, I have a, a mug that I use at the office all the time that nobody can read. And it says, uh, Dear NASA, your mom thought I was big enough. Sincerely, Pluto. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Love that mug. So uh, my sources for this were thecinemaholic.com, oxygen.com, find a grave, e-news courier, and uh, newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. 38 or so articles from the Tennessean, because it seems like that was my major source. And actually, no, my only source from newspapers.com was all from the Tennessean. Mine were all from newspapers.com, Baltimore Sun, Indianapolis Star, the Mount Carmel Republican, the Oskaloosa Times, the Bureau County Tribune, and the Neodisha Daily Register. (laughs) So, wow. Thank you, Chris Garcia. And we'll find a grave too. But um, so, yeah, that was uh, some really fascinating twin tales. It can be really interesting, the DNA side of twins and crime, because if all you have at a scene is DNA and it's to a twin, you cannot prove which twin did it. Oh, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen a Criminal Minds that did that. You <laughs> probably ha- you could easily go murder people in your sister's name. Yep. <laughs> um, we've struck a deal not to do that or fake each other's deaths, I think, for the insurance money. I think we're good on that. Okay. It does make less, life feel less chaotic when you have those kind of agreements in place when there's somebody walking around with your face. Yeah. You know? And your blood. And your blood and your DNA. So, yeah, that's, uh, well, I've always wanted to be a twin, but it's, as it turns out, apparently I ate my twin, and that's why my, my eyebrows are different colors. You did. <laughs> according to Amber. I bought you a shirt and everything. You did buy me a shirt. I don't <laughs> I know where that shirt lives now, but it lives in my drawer. I have it, and I still have oh, it. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Christiator twin. <laughs> yeah. So, so yes. Uh, don't forget about the Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. If you want more of our historical true crime goodness, you can come over there and get not only the latest episodes, but also all of our back catalog. I have two shout-outs. I'm pretty sure that they already got shout-outs, but this uh, they, they popped up this past week as having signed up, so I'm like going to go ahead and say do it again just to make sure I don't forget anybody because I was too lazy to go back and look. But uh, thank you to uh, and welcome to new Patreon members, Robin Curtis and Kat Dare. So welcome or welcome back. I'm not sure which it is. I'm not either. I know, I know, Cot, I've said her name before. I've said their name before. Yeah. Um, and But Robin, I don't know that I've heard before. Yeah, and I was just like, I don't feel like looking it up, so I'm just going to, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I'll just sing it again. That, that's less, less effort. Uh, and also a thank you to Jeremy Hunt, who sent us his local crimes 
so that we could uh, go and take a look at his town. And that gave us the whole twin theme that became this episode and the tinies over on the Patreon. It's Twin Day at Old Timey Crimey. So yeah, fun times and uh, lots of material you can go to uh, when uh, you need some more Christy and Amber and occasionally Libarbian. So uh, what you guys doing this week? <laughs> That's uh, exciting. <laughs> uh, I am working, obviously, because that's all I do. That's really all I do. And uh, trying to clean up my house because Christmas has exploded inside of it. Mm. There's glitter everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Everywhere. Your house has herpes. It really does. It looks like I employ strippers. <laughs> How about you, Libarbian? I'm researching scholarly articles and always citing my sources. Nice. Ooh. Excellent. At a girl. Um, I am waiting for kittens. Hooray! Not a euphemism. Not a euphemism at all. Only if I say it. <laughs> we are uh, finally starting down the path of getting some new kittens. And so we're, we're trying to find something that matches what we want around the area with various rescues. And I'm very, I'm beyond excited and also oddly a little nervous, but I'm a weirdo, so. No, it's like that new mom nervousness. Aw, yeah, that's the closest I'll get. <laughs> not a damn thing wrong with that. Because yeah. at least you're not going to have glitter all over your fucking house. <laughs> right. <laughs> And yeah, so that, that's one of I'm also, uh, I've been kind of getting away from Twitter. And so I tried out at one of the new social media sites that's been springing up. I tried out Post, which is post.news. And uh, I'm doing just literally just old timey newspapers over there. Um, and, you know, just stuff that I find as I'm researching. Uh, over the holidays, I had a, one, a whole bunch of Christmas stuff, like Christmas uh, menus and, and Christmas recipes and stuff. Oh, I have a recipe too. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, uh, if anybody wants to come over and just search for K-Backs Writer or just look, look up, I've been doing hashtag old crimey, or sorry, old timey <laughs> on my posts. So it's, it should be fairly easy to find me. I don't know. As far as this site is concerned, I am possibly going to it on hard mode, mainly because I would like a site to start fresh and for it to be an escape from like politics, but because it's sort of like surging up into this like left-wing refugee from Twitter space, it's hard to get politics away. <laughs> so I've had to, uh, I'm really trying to like curate my feed so I only see like historical and artistic stuff and literary stuff. And so yeah, that, that's basically my experience. I think it can be done. Um, but it Somebody just takes needs more effort. to create a social media platform where there are no politics, none. How about just the people you are directly connected to? I don't want to see what they're sharing. I bring back the pictures of food. <laughs> bring back the stupid surveys, not the stupid clickbait ones that are gonna freaking spam your phone and all of a sudden you're going to want to wonder why you get hacked all the time because you wanted to see if a paperclip made you a narcissist. <laughs> don't don't use those. But I just want to find out what kind of donut I am. No, no, those are the bad ones. <laughs> you want to know what kind of donut you are? You go to Dunkin' Donuts, you pick your top four, <laughs> and you try them out yourself. 
I don't even like donuts. It's probably weird. No, so when I was pregnant with Carter, I was obsessed with Krispy Kreme donuts. Obsessed. I'm sorry for you. Drove hours. <laughs> yeah, the closest place is like two hours away for a Krispy Kreme. I don't even know why. Two bites in, your teeth fucking hurt. Like, yeah. there's... Bleh. And ever since that, like that obsession, I can't... Like, donuts, I just can't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's where I am with that. But just a friendly reminder that if you don't know what product you're, they're selling you on, on the internet, then you are the product, my friends. That is true, yes. Dude, we are the product. The more you know. <laughs> yes, we are the product in so many places. Tips from the paranoid librarian. <laughs> I know what they do with your data. So this is, uh, I have a recipe from uh, the 1906 Baltimore Sun, in this article on ancient family recipes from Maryland Manors. So all the fancy people sent in their family recipes. And so I thought I'd give you the recipe for eggnog for a couple different reasons, because we're still kind of in the holiday season. And uh, that's A. Reason B is I'm a little concerned about the storage disgust for this said nog. And C, it kind of ends cute. Like you can, you get a little sense of the, the family's personality um, from the recipe. So it's the Broom family recipe, pint of milk, pint of cream, 12 eggs, two cups granulated sugar, one pint, pint your best French brandy, two teaspoonfuls grated nutmeg. You beat the sugar and yolks of eggs very light, add milk and cream, then the brandy, and last, the well-beaten whites of the eggs. This eggnog will keep for several weeks if set in a cool place, and additional whites of eggs can be stirred in as it is used. This old broom recipe is accompanied by the suggestive motto, never mix liquors or they'll mix you. <laughs> Have I ever made you eggnog? I don't believe so. Okay, it's very similar to that recipe. So the recipe, I think, itself is fine. I'm concerned about us taking this thing that is milk, cream, and eggs and just setting it in a cool place in 1906 for several weeks. Okay, fair. That's in alarming. Maryland, where if even it's the wintertime, is it going to be temperatures that are safe for food storage, especially dairy and well, eggs? Alcohol. Lots of alcohol in that recipe. Just one pint of brandy. You have just as, as much brandy as you do cream and milk. So, yeah, I don't know if it's enough to really do the job, but I guess if you get drunk enough, you won't care. <laughs> if so, someone in, is interested theory. in science and wants to report back, yeah. please know we're no, not at all liable for anything that does happen to you. Your food poisoning is your fault, not mine. So yeah, that's that's the recipe. There's, it's it's kind of so cute the stuff that you find in here. Like when you realize that everything hasn't always been the way that it is now. Like in the World War One, they're talking about um, the different ways that you can conserve and make food look more than it is in order to, to, you know, keep with rationing and everything. And they talk about how you can use green sandwich fillings to, you know, make a sandwich look bigger. So basically, lettuce, spinach, uh, watercress between thin slices of buttered oatmeal, oatmeal bread without any dressing at all is nice. And even better are the leaves of that member of the crest family called the nasturtium. Ooh. So it, it's just kind of interesting to think that they didn't really do that very much like a lot of the the sandwich recipes you see which yes they have recipes for sandwiches are just like 
here's a meat, maybe you get a cheese, maybe you get a dressing, maybe they go together, maybe they don't. <laughs> Lots of maybes. What do you have? Jam it in bread. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they were, like, looking for ways, like, you can make the sandwich look more substantial by piling some lettuce on top of that bitch. Boom. Done. So, uh, we've done our patriotic duty and eaten sandwiches with lettuce. All right, I think that's about it for us here on Old Timey Crimey. Uh, thank you for joining us. And we will see you, uh, I think we're still at the we'll see you when you see a phase. Yeah, we'll see you when we see you. Just so you, that's, a, that's my current uh, pain level status update. <laughs> so we'll see you when you see you. Or even when we see you. And don't um, shoot your sister. Do you have a don't from this episode? What did you learn not to do? Um, uh, that's a horrible thing to ask with what your crime was. Sorry. I know, like, it's so dark. <laughs> it's so dark. Um, don't piss off your wife if you're a murderer. There you go. That's a good one. That's a good one. Did you learn anything from us, Barb? Don't forget to leave a paper trail if your life insurance policies are not very clear. There you go. That's true, too. Yeah. All right. All right. So don't do any of those things. And bye. Bye. Bye.